0: If you have your Bibles, please open them to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. In the promise of forgiveness after the prayer of confession today, we heard the following words. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This connects what we saw two weeks ago, where Paul wrote to Timothy, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. As we've seen in our study here of Second Timothy, Paul writes a personal letter to Timothy, a man he refers to as his dear son, and gives him a series of charges. The first is found in chapter 1, verse 14, Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. I suspect there's a part in each one of us that says, I can do that. Particularly with the help of the Holy Spirit, as, as Paul mentions. But the second charge found in chapter two is an entirely different matter. It's found in chapter two, verses eighteen through thir- or verses eight through thirteen. It can be summarized this way: the way of the Christian may involve suffering, but certainly requires enduring. A part of us, I think, resist any notion of suffering, even for a good cause. Even for the right reason or reasons. Yet Paul makes the case, as we saw in verses 8 through 13, that we find examples and patterns in the life of Jesus, in the life of Paul, and in the life of the church. If you look at verse number 8, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel. It's interesting that Paul only mentions two things about Jesus here, that he was raised from the dead and he was descended from David. And yet in these two things he mentions, we find the entire gospel, the birth, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. That he is descended from David speaks to his being human. That he is raised from the dead speaks of his being God. yet there's more, I think, than Paul merely dealing with the matter of suffering. Jesus was raised from the dead because, in fact, he had died. He had suffered. But that was not the end of the story. He was raised from the dead. And I think we find the connection that Paul is trying to make, that is, between suffering and exaltation. In Jesus, we see our example, that there will first be suffering, if you wish, and then there is exaltation. But again, a part of us would rather sort of skip the suffering part And go straight to the exaltation. But in fact, if we are joint heirs with Jesus, if we are his brothers and sisters, why would we expect a different route? Then there is the example of Paul. It's mentioned in verses 9 and 10. For which I am suffering, the gospel for which he is suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Timothy was familiar enough with Paul's sufferings. Uh, Why would he expect anything different in his own life? And then we have the example of the church or the common Christian experience. If you look at verses 11, 12, and 13, here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Here the Christian life is portrayed as a life of dying and a life of enduring. Not, I think, not something that we necessarily want to think about, let alone participate in. Paul has written about the dying part before in Romans 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We cannot be, in fact, raised if, in fact, we have not died. We cannot be resurrected without death. And it isn't merely a physical death that Paul is speaking of, but rather dying to the things that we would rather have as the center of our lives. The things that would drive us, our motivation, our ambition. If it's anything other than Jesus Christ then it is something that is to be put to death. And it isn't a once for all thing. It is something we must continue to do because it will always, I think, sort of pop up and say, let's go this way rather than following what God has commanded. We may be called to suffer. We may. We may not. But in fact, we are certainly all called to endure. Neither one, though, I think, seemed particularly attractive to us struck by the fact, a book came out, I think last year, uh, some of you may know of it, it's called The Myth of Persecution, How Early Christians Invented a Story of Martyrdom. Interestingly enough, it's written by a professor of history at the University of Notre Dame, Candida Moss, and it has provoked interest for different reasons. I think non-Christians are happy to hear that Christians actually didn't suffer in the early church, that's what Professor Moss is arguing, I think rather badly, by the way, Christians, I think, feel a certain sense of relief that, oh, well, we don't have to be martyrs because that whole martyr thing was sort of a fiction created by the early church. Um, no. We may have to suffer, but we must certainly endure. Lest we lose our way, fail to understand what Paul is saying, Paul gives us six metaphors, three before the charge and three after. Um, we've looked at the first three, and if you Permit me, I just want to review them. Uh, The first metaphor is found in verses 3 and 4. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. In all of Paul's other writings, whenever he writes about a soldier, it's usually in the context of warfare or weapons or armor. Here, in fact, it is something else. It is someone who is a dedicated man. It is someone who is single-minded. He has the desire to focus and to obey his commanding officer. So, in fact, particularly in the Roman legions, there would be a certain amount of suffering that would be involved. Um, If you were a soldier in the Roman legion, you did not expect an easy life or a safe time. Um, Hardship, risk, suffering, this is what it meant to be a soldier. At the same time, to be a good soldier meant That you were focused. You were concentrated with the aim of pleasing your commander. This is what Paul is about to tell Timothy to do in the charge. The second metaphor is of the rule keeping athlete, verse 5. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. I think this is self explanatory. I, I wanted to say more about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, particularly with professional athletes, we like sort of the, well I say we, but the general public likes sort of the bad boy, you know, the guy who doesn't want to keep the rules, uh, who's flouting the rules. But in fact, if you're playing any game, there are certain rules and if you don't obey those rules, then no matter how flamboyant you are, you will not receive points or you will not receive credit for the work that you have done. So you stay within the boundaries of the rules. And what are the rules for us as Christians? The first commandment is to love the Lord our God. And the second is to love our neighbor as ourself. The third metaphor is of the hardworking farmer in verse number six. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. If the soldier is to be single-minded and if the athlete is to compete according to the rules, the farmer is in fact to work hard. I would argue that all three, that's true of all three, but it is mentioned with regard to the farmer. To be a successful farmer depends as much on sweat as it does on skill. But farming is not glamorous. Unlike the soldier, there are no parades for farmers. Unlike the athlete, there is no applause. But if we take these three metaphors together, Beyond warfare warfare for that soldier is victory, and beyond the athletic effort is a prize, and for the farmer, beyond his work is a crop. And in all three, while there may be suffering, there is not necessarily suffering, but there may be suffering, there is certainly to be endurance. If a soldier wants to achieve victory, if an athlete wants to win the prize. If a farmer wants to reap a crop, they must, each of them, endure. That is part of their job description, if you wish. Well, Paul has given the charge in verses 8 to 13, which we saw a few minutes ago. Now he gives three more metaphors. And I, I must confess, um, these three metaphors are not as clearly spelled out as the first ones were and I might even be accused of reaching a bit. Um, But I do, in fact, believe that they fit what Paul is writing to Timothy as he charges Timothy, this is what you are supposed to do. The fourth metaphor is found in verses 14 through 19. It's actually, I think, the longest of the six. It is of the unashamed worker. And in fact, I think verse number 15 might be familiar to many of you. Let me read verse 14 on Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. Sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows who are His, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Now we need to remember the context here. The charge is that, as, as a Christian, as a teacher, Timothy is to endure. This is what he's supposed to do, and he is charging him in the face of the call to endure to teach others that they must also endure as well. Keep on reminding them of these things, Paul says, and then he says, "Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved." And here's the metaphor an unashamed workman or a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Um, I don't want to spend much time on the business of being ashamed. I will only say that it is referring to the worker, that he does not need to be ashamed of himself or what he has done. It's not being ashamed of the truth. Um, Earlier it spoke of disowning God. That's not what is in, in view here. It is, rather he has been called to do something and therefore he does it and he is unashamed because that was his calling it's what god wanted him to do he is marked as one who is approved by god and one who correctly handles the word of truth it is this last quality i think that most people focus on when they look at verse number 15 on the king james it is rightly dividing the word of truth and there are different images that commentators have presented One is of someone who cuts a loaf of bread and then gives out portions to different people. One is of someone who has a plot of land and sort of subdivides it and gives it to different people. One image that people think of is of cutting a stone so that it will fit exactly into a space in the building where it belongs. But I don't think that this is what Paul had in mind at all. Rather, the language that he uses is of a workman who has been given an assignment, to go from point a to point b to build a road from point a to point b through a difficult terrain through forested area through areas uh, through an area that is very difficult to get through so if you wish you're going from one point to another and in between might be an you know this ancient forest you know just a lot of trees or a lot of rocks or there might in fact be some hills or mountains but A workman who does not need to be ashamed is someone who, in fact, does that. He gets from point A to point B. He builds the road that should be built. Paul wants Timothy and those he is teaching to do what is required. Here it might be suffering or enduring as they handle the word of truth. They are to be accurate on the one hand, and they are to be plain. The good workman is true to scripture. He doesn't falsify. He doesn't add to it. Neither does he try to confuse people. Simply put, the workman that Paul has in mind here handles the word of God with such care that he himself stays on the path. He's building this road from point A to point B. He stays on that path. He does not take any unnecessary detours. He's not distracted. He stays on it, and he makes it easy for others to follow This stands in stark contrast to, if you wish, the bad workmen. And Paul describes this here in verses 16 through 18, and he even mentions Hymenaeus and Philetus by name. Um, Such people have wandered off the path. If you wish, they began to build a road from point A to point B to handle the word of God, but then they got careless. And now they have wandered off the path, and they're never going to get to point B because they have become distracted. Paul tells Timothy that such people are to be avoided, because they will become more and more ungodly, and that their error will, spe- will spread like gangrene. It's a double danger. That is, that they are godless, and they are gangrenous. They will take people, they will lead people away from God, and in the place of God, they will give an infection, a gangrene, that will eat away at them and i think paul i don't know that he intends to gives us two tendencies of heresies of false teachings and so when we hear people saying something perhaps something we've not heard before and we might wonder what should i think about this teaching we need to ask ourselves two questions what is the attitude of this teaching toward god or of the teacher toward god and secondly what effect does it have on people I'm not sure, well, I think I know why, but there's something about error that invariably it is dishonoring to God and it is damaging to people. And as Paul says, it destroys the faith of some. The truth, on the other hand, honors God, we would expect that, but it also edifies, it builds up the hearers. It is truly disturbing to me to hear that, in fact, That the faith of some can be destroyed or upset, as the ESV has it. That false teaching has that power. But Paul isn't finished here. Listen to what he writes in verse number 19. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with the inscription, The Lord knows who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness as was the case at the end of the charge in verse number 13. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So here as well, the final word is not the damage that false teaching or false teachers can do. The, the final word is not, in fact, the faithlessness of some. The final word is God's abiding faithfulness. The church is built on a sure foundation which is sealed with the inscription, The Lord knows who are his. By the way, this passage, I think Paul may have in mind, may have had in mind, the story found in Numbers chapter 16. You may know it, the story it's the rebellion of Korah and others. And they came to to Moses and Aaron. They challenged their authority and they said, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? They're saying, basically, Moses, who put you in charge? And Aaron, why are you the high priest? Aren't all of God's people holy? Exodus 19, you are a holy nation, holy priesthood. So why do you think you're better than others? Well, if you read the story, Moses fell on his face to the ground. And then when he got up, he said to them, In the morning, the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy. I don't know if you remember the story, but the next day, Moses told the people of Israel, if you don't want anything to do with Korah, you need to separate yourselves. And once they did, the ground opened up and swallowed up Korah and his family and his followers. Truly, the Lord knows who are his. But there's something else. He says, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. You see, ultimately, it's only the Lord who knows and recognizes his own people, who, knows that, who can discern the genuine from the fake, because only he can see the heart. So what are we left to do? We, we are we're among God's people. How do we know that someone is truly a child of God? We cannot see their heart. Okay? And we should not claim to. I think we should need to be very careful that somehow we think we can discern people's motives. We can, however, see their life. And their life should be marked by turning away from wickedness. So it's the double inscription, if you wish. God knows who are his people. Don't worry. The final word is God's faithfulness, not the faithlessness of these false teachers. But secondly, we as God's people know who belong to God because they have turned away from wickedness. The call is to be workers who handle the word of God accurately and plainly. But you might wonder, how do I know how to handle, how do I know if someone is in fact handling the word of God accurately and plainly? I would point you back to verse number seven. And if you look at that, Reflect on what I am saying, Paul tells Timothy, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. And spoke about this two weeks ago, but let me just review. Paul calls on Timothy to reflect. And then he says, God will give you insight into this. And what we find is a combination. It isn't study, 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 and you'll figure things out. And neither is it, don't study at all, and the Lord will give you insight. But it is, in fact, the two. That there is to be deep reflection on what we find in Scripture. We are to think about what Paul has written. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. We are to listen to it as it is read. Listen carefully. And then we are to apply our minds to it. And in that, the Lord will give us understanding. I don't think we can have one without the other. Um, God is gracious. and I think there may be times when He gives us insight beyond what we have, the effort that we've put into studying. But I think this is Scripture, and we are to treat it as something that is precious, and we are to reflect on it, and not simply assume that I can read it and God will because we have the Holy Spirit. Instantly turn on the lights and I will have understanding into everything that scripture means. It is in fact to be hard work. It is to be hard work. We are to be workers, workmen, who are approved and who are not ashamed. The fifth metaphor is found in verses 20 and 21. This is the metaphor of the clean vessel or container. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. And then verse number 22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name God. Of the Lord out of a pure heart. The metaphor here deals with vessels or containers. Its setting is allowed as a large house, which indicates it is the house of someone who has money, because they have their vessels or containers that are made of gold, silver, wood, and clay. Most people in, in Paul's day would only have something that was made of wood and clay. Um, but not only do we have different types of materials used for these vessels or containers, but they, they have, in fact, different functions. Some are for noble or honorable purposes, and others are for lowly or dishonorable purposes. Some have argued that gold and silver are the ones that are for noble purposes and wooden clay for the dishonorable. Um, I'm not convinced, but I think it doesn't, it's not critical to understanding what Paul is saying. If you go back to verse number 19, it speaks of the necessity of turning away from wickedness. And then in verse number 21, cleansing oneself from the latter, from false teaching. The result is he will be an instrument, a vessel for noble purposes. And this means, as Paul writes, he will be made holy, he will be useful to the master, and he will be prepared for any good work. How does one do this? How does one cleanse oneself? Well, verse 22 Flee the evil desires of youth. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And thirdly, don't do it alone. The first two, I think, should sound familiar. Uh, in First Timothy 6, but you, men of God, flee from all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So that that we've heard that before. Um, What are the evil desires of youth? I don't think that this refers exclusively or even necessarily primarily to sexual lust. If you think about it, as you get older and you look back on yourself when you were younger, there are certain things you did when you were younger that were wrong and foolish. And if you could sort of write the story of your life, you would say, those were the evil desires of my youth. Perhaps self-assertion, self-indulgence, selfish ambition, arrogance, stubbornness, just no no sense of I need to stick with something, but just sort of flitting around. Uh, I think Paul has these in mind. But Paul doesn't stop here. Again and again, Paul doesn't simply give us a negative and walk off. He then gives us the positive. We are to be marked by righteousness, faith, love, and peace. We are to run away from we are to flee from the evil desires of you. And we are to run to righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And then Paul adds something here that he did not have in 1 Timothy 6. Don't do it alone. You are not the only Christian. You are the part of a body, a community. Run away from those things and run to these things along with those who call on the name of the Lord Out of a pure heart. The final metaphor is the Lord's servant found in verses 23 to 26. This I think should be familiar enough because we've seen it in scripture before, being a servant. Verse 23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Because you know they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. As Paul did in verse 14, when he spoke of quarreling about words, and verse 16, godless chatter, Paul mentions the matter of arguments or debates, which he calls foolish and stupid. Um, The ESV, I think, has something we might prefer, and that is ignorant. I just hesitate because I know that my sister, with her children, when she was raising them, they were not allowed to use the word stupid. And then if they're reading the NIV, suddenly they find the word stupid in the Bible. It's rather strong language. Why would Paul use this language? And what is so bad about these things? Why does he say that they are foolish, that they are ignorant, that they are stupid? Because they are speculative. They are purely subjective. They have no basis for appeal. God has given us scripture. Even then, they had the Old Testament. They had revelation. And rather than dealing with what God had revealed to them, they sort of went off on a, on a tangent of their own and began to speculate about various things. And Paul tells Timothy, don't have anything to do with these things. All they do is lead to debates and quarrels and arguments. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. I think, by the way, this final metaphor is very much tied to the one before it. The vessels in the house, gold, silver, wooden clay, these are instruments, these are to serve the needs of the master. Well, so is, so is a servant. A servant is there to serve. What are the right qualities of a servant? Well, if you look at verses 24 and 25, Paul tells us, they don't quarrel, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. And interestingly, in, in verse 25, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. So, must not quarrel, that's negative, must be kind to everyone, positive, must be able to teach, positive, must not be resentful, if you wish negative, and then must gently instruct those who oppose him. I I, I must confess that the first four sound somewhat difficult but doable. I mean that, in fact, we're not to quarrel, that we're to be kind to everyone, we're to teach, and we are not to be resentful. It's the last one that I think really uh, sort of a curve is thrown at us, we are to gently instruct those who oppose us. I mean, how many Christians have you heard who gently, in trying to answer someone's uh, questions or someone's accusations against Scripture, come back very gently. You know, that, that gently they, they seek to instruct them. Rather than saying, okay, you've pulled out a sword, I'm going to pull out a sword and let's just sort of fight this thing and I'm going to win this debate this is to be the demeanor of a servant those of you familiar with the book of Isaiah know that he wrote chapters describing the servant let me just read to you a few verses Isaiah 42 here is my servant whom I uphold my chosen one in whom I delight I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations if we stop right there He will bring justice to the nations. Immediately, I have a military image in mind because he's going to have to subdue people who are in rebellion. But let me keep reading the next verse. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And then from Isaiah 53, a familiar chapter... He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. We now know that these passages speak of the Messiah. They point ahead to the coming of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the servant par excellence. And we hear from Jesus, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians, as he is writing against false teachers, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. As servants, we are not masters. We are to be marked by gentleness. And in the face of the charge That, in fact, we may suffer, but we are certainly to endure. Gentleness is not the first thing that comes to mind. When I think of someone who has endured, I think of someone who is not necessarily mean, but someone who's tough. And the idea of being gentle in our dealings with others is something I think Paul needs to tell us about, and thus he writes to Timothy. We are to be gentle with them. And we are to hope by God's grace that he will be gracious and give them the gift of repentance. I don't think a person can be argued into becoming a Christian. I don't think someone can be debated into becoming a part of the kingdom of God. We are to pray for such people and we are to instruct them gently and pray that God will give them the gift of repentance. He will open their eyes and lead them to the truth. They'll come to their senses, as Paul puts it, and escape the trap of the devil. In this second charge, we see that the life of the Christian, the way of the Christian, may involve suffering, but it will certainly involve, it requires enduring. The first three metaphors that Paul gives us, I think we're like, yes, you're absolutely right, Paul. A soldier, an athlete, a farmer, these individuals may suffer, but they certainly have to endure in order to get the prize, to win the victory, or to have a crop to harvest. But what about the final three metaphors, the ones we've just looked at today? The unashamed worker, the clean vessel or container, the Lord's servant. I would suggest to you that each of these as well carry with them the matter of enduring. That as a worker, we must endure. As a container or vessel, we must endure. And as the Lord's servants, we are to endure. And we are not to do it alone. James, last week, toward the end of his sermon, spoke of community and how important it is. I was tempted in my notes to write, we cannot do this alone. And the reason I, I will back off a bit, I, in fact, I don't think we can do it alone, but I don't want us to say, well, we needed to do, to do it together as sort of a utilitarian thing, like, well, I've tried it this way, it doesn't work, so now I'll try it with the people of God. No, we are the people of God. We cannot do this alone. I cannot get to point A from point A to point B by myself. I cannot, in a very real sense, cleanse myself run away from evil desires and pursue righteousness without you guys. I cannot. And I cannot be the servant I should be apart from the people of God. So when we hear that the life of the Christian may involve suffering, it will certainly require endurance. Let us keep in the forefront of our mind that we are not alone, and we are not to do this alone, but with the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, for many of us, we have for a time in our lives thought of salvation as our ticket to heaven. That we don't have to go to hell, that we get to go to heaven and have a pleasant afterlife, a pleasant eternity, versus the horrors of hell. By your grace, as we've learned, as we've grown, we've come to see that, in fact, there are things we're supposed to be doing here as your children. And that as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus... Paul and the other apostles and in fact the footsteps of the church we may in fact have to suffer but we will certainly have to endure there is no point in our lives at which we can say I'm not going to do that anymore I've done enough and there's no point in our lives at which we can say I can do this by myself we might be humble and say well I need the work of the spirit I need the spirit to be with me but help us to recognize that we need each other we are the people of God by your grace and in fleeing and running away from the things we should not do we need others to stand with us and in pursuing and running to righteousness we need each other We live in a culture that is very individualistic by nature. We admire the people who can do things on their own. The loner, the person who has achieved greatness on his own or on her own. This is not what you've called us to. You've called us to be your children, to be a part of your people. By your grace may we see that clearly today. We remember Fidas and Mary Grace this time of loss. We ask that you would comfort them. We pray for Tessa's brother Romy, who's had a stroke, that you would touch him and draw him to yourself. For Lillian's father, who's fallen again and hurt himself. Give those who are dealing with him wisdom. Calm him by your grace. I thank you for Lillian and Greg's faithfulness in taking care of him. And give them wisdom as well. And as we leave today, we leave rejoicing at the news of Gracie Greenhold joining us. Be with Mike and Jesse. thank you for this wonderful gift. Now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.